Welcome to the October episode of OMP Clinical Care Insiders, an original podcast series produced by the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists. I'm Seth O'Brien, Vice President of Prosthetics at Wheeler OMP and Chair of the Academy's Scientific Societies Committee. Today, I'm excited to welcome Kara Davis, Certified and Licensed Prosthetist Orthotist with Texas Scottish Rite Hospital in Dallas, Texas, Fellow of the Academy and Secretary of the Academy's Spinal Orthotics Society. Kara is a graduate of the University of Michigan and Eastern Michigan University's OMP graduate program. She has spent the past 16 years practicing at Scottish Rite for Children in Dallas, Texas, and currently she's the clinical coordinator for the orthotics department and specializes in scoliosis management. Kara, it's great to see you and, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Seth. It's nice to be here. Appreciate it. Well, I, I don't want to start with the obvious question. We're going to save that for number two, but let's start a little different. How do you unwind from work? We know, you know, the medical field is super stressful and especially OMP. What do you like to do for fun? How do you unwind? That's a good question. I have three boys at home that keep me very, very busy. Uh, pretty much my life is evolving around them. They're very involved with scouting. So we do a lot with that. We're currently training for a 50 mile bike ride with my 12 year old. Oh, um, awesome. Yeah. I'm super excited for that. I have twins, identical twin boys that just turned eight and they're starting scouting as well. Oh man. So, so actually the work is the unwinding for you, huh? <laughs> Truth in that statement. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you just got to come to work to yeah, to get away. That's right. I've got two boys and I can't imagine adding a third to that mix and staying sane. Yeah. And then we're a big baseball family as well. So I coach my twins in their baseball season and we're in the middle of fall ball for that right now. That's, That's awesome. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. So what led you to the field, other than needing to get away from this craziness at home, what led you to the field of OMP? So I originally went to my undergraduate program for engineering and through that and gearing up for grad school and working in a research lab, doing a lot of research and realizing at the end of the day, walking home, that I hadn't talked to anybody throughout the entire day and kind of reevaluated what I needed in my life and had originally back in high school shadowed at an OMP facility as just sort of a you know program that our high school participated in. I was like, oh, this is really cool, but I'm 18 and know what I'm going to do with my life and <laughs> went about engineering school. And then when looking for grad schools, sort of revisited the idea of orthotics and prosthetics, did a lot more job shadowing and sort of internal reflection and decided that might be a good fit. And thankfully went for it because 16 years later, I love my job. So. Oh, that's amazing. And did you go straight from completing residencies and things like that into the program at, at Scottish Rite or, or did you make other stops along the way? No, I am Scottish Rite born and bred. I did both of my residencies here. I don't know what life's outside of these <laughs> <laughs> walls. So I know the Scottish Rite way very well and I'm aware there's an outside world out there. Um, <laughs> but you're plugged into the matrix yeah, and, and all is well. That's funny. Well, as you may know, uh, October's Spina Bifida Month, Spina Bifida Awareness Month, I should say. And, uh, you know, I'd imagine this is probably a condition that, that you encounter fairly often at Scottish Rite. Would that be accurate? Yeah, we have a very large Spina Bifida population that we see here through our clinics regularly. And so, you know, we have a, a multidisciplinary staff that cares for them and OMP is a part of their world for sure. Yeah. So we do see quite a few. It's a fascinating patient population. Like you mentioned, it's such a multifaceted treatment process and, and usually complicated cases, right? 
It is. Yeah. I feel like this is one of our more complex areas that we treat here at the hospital. Of course, we're, we're all pediatric, so under the age of 18. When they come into clinic, they not only see the physician, but you know they have a dentist that's monitoring their dental program and urology and dietary for weight management and physical therapy and, and then O&P is wrapped up in there. And so just kind of getting all those boxes checked and making sure that everybody's kind of on the same page with their treatment program. I know we kind of approach that from separate angles, you know, you from the orthotic side and, and myself from the prosthetic side, but that can be a challenging case a lot of times, like you mentioned. And, and I know just some of the things that I experience are things like wound management and really a different focus on goals of not just mobility goals, but independence goals. Would you see the, the same thing often there? I know you're dealing with pediatric populations, so maybe that's something that is being looked to down the road, but I would imagine that the independence factor is still a common thread. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's probably the, the most important thread that we try to carry throughout their childhood. You know, kids are growing and changing so quickly normally, and so they're developing, and from birth on up, you know, they start crawling and pulling the stand, and that's kind of normal growth and development, walking, running, you know, those sorts of things. And our spina bifida population grows and develops, but at a different rate and sometimes with different endpoints. And so figuring out what kind of their maximum end point is going to be to get them as independent and as mobile as they can be once they reach adulthood and transition into the real world is kind of our long-term goal. And so we are constantly reevaluating where they are and how their normal growth and development is interacting with their medical treatment. And so what we can kind of do to intervene and maybe bump them up or, or keep them going a little bit further, you know, and you mentioned the wound management. I think that's a big part of it. You know, with ONP care, it's our job to make sure we have well-fitting devices that don't cause those wounds. And of course, every once in a while, it still happens. We have kids that are growing and changing and sometimes disappear for you know months or a year at a time when their body is changing and adjustments need to be made. But there's also life outside of the hospital. And so, for example, here in Dallas, it's hot in the summers and kids go to the pools and you know sometimes we'll not wear protective shoes in the pool and come in with you know, a wound that then takes a year or more to heal up. Their ability to heal from those wounds just is a little bit slower oftentimes. And so, yeah, I mean, I think at you from the prosthetic perspective, you know, sometimes we have patients that make that transition actually from being a orthotic wearer and, you know, then come down with some sort of chronic wound condition with perhaps deformed feet that are not super functional anyway and opt to go that route. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, that, you know, has a, a very familiar sound to it. I have a, a case that a patient that I've seen somewhat recently that is kind of on the, you know, on the older end of that spectrum. So now going through orthotic management of exactly what you just described for a long time, probably had an amputation maybe 20 or 30 years ago at this point, but they're in their their 50s. And, you know, it's interesting that for the longest time, I've, I've been taking care of that patient for quite a while. And the biggest challenges that we had were because of that insensate, you know, wound management kind of theme and a very atrophied limb. And then all of a sudden just kind of hit the right age where it went from that being our constant biggest concern to just balance and fall frequency and injuries from falls trying to hold down a new job. And that, that became a, a very different focus all of a sudden and, and something that we ended up 
kind of rethinking our prosthetic approach to, you know, what she was wearing entirely and something that we ended up swapping, even though it, it seems a little counterintuitive because of the weight, we ended up switching to a microprocessor foot that drastically reduced falls. But that was a challenge where all of a sudden the, the mobility decline, you know, in, in the mid fifties or so just, just really kind of went off a cliff and, and we had to kind of go back to square one and figure out how to address this new number one concern, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, that independence at work would be huge. You know, we kind of get the kids up to the point where they may be entering the workforce, you know, at age 18. And so, yeah, that that independence is just absolutely critical. And so figuring out what they need to maximize that is always the challenge. And I think weight management is a big part of that. You know, we're, again, in the pediatric setting, so birth to 18. And oftentimes in sort of later childhood, you know, they're getting taller and it gets harder to walk farther. And so sometimes transitioning into partial wheelchair ambulation or something like that. And so it's easier to put on a little weight or or that sort of thing. And so that's where dietary comes in and it's so important. But um, just keeping the kids active and mobile I think then inherently increases independence in the long term. And I, I guess from your end, you're seeing it on the on the other end of the age spectrum, you know, as they as they age and have, you know, different issues, but all definitely relatable. And I think independence is kind of the key to that there. Yeah. And, and the age metabolism <laughs> throws a, a whole nother wrench in it there too, right? These are all, you know, they're bringing back memories of, of all of the things that we've struggled with, with with this particular case. But in sort of that institutional setting, do you have dietitians and all of those resources on site there? Do you guys have a team approach from that perspective? We do, yes. And so they actually see them every time they come see the physician. So we have a like a pediatrician that kind of manages the overall care umbrella, but then they will see uh, dietary pretty much most visits. If there's any wound care management, they would see nursing. Um, they would see ONP if they use any devices. Oftentimes physical therapy and occupational therapy if they're working on mobility goals, transfers, that sort of thing. Uh, so that those are long appointments. They're here for a while because yeah. <laughs> there's so many people popping into the room to see them. And then our pediatrician kind of comes up with their overall plan that then everybody's kind of a part of. Gotcha. Yeah, that's great to have that team setting from the private side or just a non-institutional setting, right? It's It sometimes becomes a challenge to convince the patient that they need to take the time and the resources to see a dietitian or wound care or just all of these things that are so inherent in kind of the 360 degree view of their care. But uh, each one of those becomes a, a roadblock in its own right when they're all separate specialties. So Kara, I'd love to know, you've been a longtime Academy member. When did you first join the Academy and, and what was it that kind of started that journey for you? Uh, yeah, I think I joined uh, right around the same time that I became a resident or maybe it was right after. I can't quite recall, but I've always been drawn to the academic side of the profession, and I've enjoyed participating in many academy meetings. And I think that was a, a big draw was just to be able to go to the academy meetings and learn what other people are doing across the country, try to pull as much information as I can just to help myself and my colleagues here know what's current and state of the art within the field. Um, and I think the academy is where, where you go to do that. Since that initial poll, to attend the meetings have found many other resources that the academy offers that are nice benefits publications that are put out in the webinars and, you know some of the other educational opportunities good way to stay plugged in for sure 
I, I don't want to spoil any surprises, but the 50th anniversary of the annual meeting and scientific symposium is coming up this year and well, next year, technically in 2024. So it's just around the corner in March and we're going to be back in Chicago, which is always a very good time and a huge meeting for us. And, and it'll be a, an exciting one and a special one being the 50th anniversary. Yeah, that's awesome. Congratulations on 50 years. Yeah, thank you. I mean, you know, thank goodness I wasn't here for day one, but sometimes I'm starting to feel like I was. A few things have probably changed in the past 50 years. Yeah, it'll be an exciting one. Hopefully we can connect in Chicago. Tell me, so back to sort of this journey and, and what got you into the spinal specialty. What I know when we were talking before, you mentioned a little bit about sort of the evolution of spinal treatment. And, and can you share a little bit about what has evolved within that mode of treatment in your eyes over the last, what, I mean, you've been practicing for what, 16 years, is it now or, or more? Yeah. Yeah. A little more than 16 years. So I think everything has changed really. When I started at Scottish Rite, I was training under Don Cotts was my mentor and we were doing Boston braces and they were, you know, a few measurements and we would order a module uh, and then glue the pads in and with the patients and you know outcomes were actually pretty good but i think knowing what's more current in our understanding of scoliosis and what drives scoliosis and how limited we are in looking at a coronal plane x-ray only bracing technology has evolved on the whole and so we went out seeking kind of what can we do better and i think there's always things you can do better but things that we focused on were braces that were more wearable more likely to be compliant which meant lower profile, easier to wear under clothing, less noticeable. And so that's where CAD CAM came in about a decade and a half ago. And we started making lower profile braces because we were starting with a scan rather than a bulky tube with a lot of padding on the inside. So we stripped out a lot of the padding that we didn't need that was just adding bulk and heat and only using padding where we really needed it for you know the corrective sources to make the braces more comfortable. But then I think the understanding of scoliosis and the three-dimensional components of it, how rotation fits in the equation, uh, we really started moving towards more Chinot-type bracing and went out and sought mentorship with orthotists in the field to get trained in sort of the Chinot principles. And then more recently, I've gone over to the Germany lectureship over there and learned directly from the creators and have brought that back to the hospital here where we can then implement. Yeah, I think just the idea of scoliosis being a, a three-dimensional treatment and really having to go over the rotational component much more aggressively and understanding that and understanding that you're going to have to have bigger gaps opposite your corrective forces in order to derotate, those sorts of things. So really our braces that we're fitting today don't look anything like braces we were fitting a decade ago. Yeah, I, th I think there's big changes. <laughs> yeah. And, and what about, you know, with maybe, I don't know that the technology has necessarily changed in terms of getting, you know, multiple data points from different types of scans or x-rays, but is the access to that information or what you can do with it maybe evolved a little bit over the last couple of decades? Yeah. I think also with EOS x-rays now that are the low dose 3D reconstruction films we're getting, we're getting a lot more feedback now with what our braces are doing. And so we hope to be publishing some of that data soon. Um, but yeah, I think just our understanding of what scoliosis really, how it needs to be treated is dictating what then we need to evaluate outcomes more effectively. And I think the, the 3D 
x-rays will be very helpful to get those rotational aspects. You know, I, as just a, uh, a foolish prosthetist and not speaking the, the full language, but I've always kind of thought that there's a lot of naming conventions that get confusing too. Has that shifted at all? I think it seems like a lot of times it's it's either a name from somebody who invented a certain approach or maybe from, you know, the, the region or the city which they came. But what's changed there? Or is it still the same? Is it still all focused on very specific naming techniques as opposed to what the brace is actually doing? Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's actually a pet peeve of mine that I think it's very confusing, especially when you're reading literature, because people put a name on a brace and it's actually not very descriptive of what that brace actually is. I think there's a huge amount of variability. You know, when you say a Boston brace, is that a Boston module that, you know, we were fitting a decade ago, or is it the Boston 3D, or is it the Boston, I think they're making more, a version of the Chanel now as well. So naming conventions got very muddy. And then there's, you know, a lot of, historically, a lot of them were named after cities where they were invented, which is not very descriptive at all, other than knowing where they came from. Right. Then there was a a new naming convention that was proposed that I am in huge support of, all the team that worked on that. And we've started using it here to describe our braces, but it's a more descriptive naming convention and it's being supported by SOSORT, which is a, a non-op spine group uh, that's international. And I think SRS, I can't remember who else, but there's several organizations that are all kind of in support of this more meaningful naming convention to describe braces and what they're actually doing. Are they rotating? Are they elongating? And does the progress on those naming conventions just depend on us as clinicians to start using different terminology and sort of adopting the more descriptive names? Or is there some sort of regulatory or professional organization that can help to sort of push for that? It seems like maybe it's just sort of a grassroots kind of a thing of of what's the norm and what's accepted. It's a great question that I I don't have the perfect answer for. Um, I was not involved with that group. I just read the paper and brought it to my group and said, hey, look at this. This is awesome that we're doing this. I've also seen it presented at some of the conferences when it was kind of still being developed. And then they, they kind of put out the final paper. And so like, for example, most recently, we just put out a publication and in that publication referred to our braces using that naming convention. And so hopefully more academic folks will become aware that it's out there and start using it in their publications so that when you're going back and reading these articles years down the road, you can maybe pull some idea of what type of brace was being used rather than a city name that really doesn't, is more confusing than anything. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. During your journey to this specialty within orthotics, was there a specific encounter or or any kind of event that inspired you to take a leadership role within the Spinal Orthotics Society? You know, when I started as a resident, Spinal management was honestly not probably my favorite thing. It wasn't until a few years in that you know, when you're young and you feel like, oh, I know, I'm getting good at this stuff. And then you realize, oh, I really don't know anything. I have so much more to learn. Yeah. Uh, that, that there's, a, there's a gap there, I think, you know, where you have to kind of realize and get a little humbled. But opening the box of spinal scoliosis management specifically is is so complex. And I think just kind of getting into the the deeper part of that and understanding what drives it. And definitely once CAD CAM was involved, I think it 
was a more intriguing thing for me. I think the technology allowed for so much more control. And we've really worked towards standardizing how to implement the correction that we want to end up with in our CAD CAM techniques over the years. There was an evolution, my level of interest in spinal management. But once I kind of was getting more and more involved with spine here at the hospital, wanted to kind of reach out and see, you know, what else was going on around the country. And the Spinal Orthotic Society was a chance to get kind of plugged in there and have met some great friends in the leadership there. And, you know, I think just kind of staying plugged in with the spine community, we try to put out some publications and webinars and those sorts of things throughout the year. Well, the the Spinal Orthotic Society has been very active in that. So you're very humble in understating that. But, you know, I know one of the things that that you have been an advocate for is is kind of a holistic treatment. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, know, what that holistic approach kind of means to you and, and maybe how you see that in practice at Scottish Rite? You know, I mentioned before, just treating the whole patient is so important. And when kids come in and they're diagnosed with scoliosis and told that they need to wear a back brace, everybody handles that situation a little bit differently. And sometimes they're like, well, okay, let's do this. We've got this. And they have a good support structure and a solid sense of self and they're fine with it. And that's wonderful when that happens. However, sometimes I think kids come in and same scenario and it crushes them. It's just life altering and the biggest, most terrible thing in their life in their 10 years of existence or whatever age they are when they're diagnosed with this. And so I think, you know, those are the ones where we really need to work a little bit harder to treat the whole patient, you know, and, you know, we're pretty lucky here at Scottish Rite to have some resources to lean on when we have kids that are struggling a little bit. We have a child life department that can come down and work with the kids and come up with really, well, what what are your problems? And then let's work on some interventions or give you some tools in your toolbox to how do you talk to your friends at school about the brace? Or how do we come up with a wear schedule that maybe you can work on realistically at home with perhaps some rewards or, you know, something like that if you meet your goals? And I think they've been super helpful. So we we definitely lean on them to come help with some of our kids. I also think there are scenarios where, unfortunately, sometimes kids come in with things that are already going on in their lives and it has nothing to do with their scoliosis management. You know, maybe they already have a anxiety or depression situation, or maybe they're being bullied at school already, or they just don't have a good home structure, those sorts of things, or an underlying diagnosis. And this is just one more thing. And so I think in those situations, sometimes psychology gets involved with, you know, a sort of higher level of intervention that they can counsel the kids with. But, you know, there's also physical therapy that can be involved with these kids. There's a lot of resources, I think. And so we try to talk with the families see what their needs are and really work with them. Uh, We do a lot of counseling ourselves, even as orthotists, when they come in and talking with them and just seeing how things are going. What can we work on? You know, part of our counseling sessions, every time they come in, involve a download of their sensor, which is a little button in their brace that monitors their hours of wear. And we always have a conversation about that. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes it's just a high five, you know, great job. Yeah, yeah. Other times it's, oh, why is it dropping every, you know, every weekend here? (laughs) Yeah. Your screen time is through the roof. What are you doing? (laughs) Yeah. So that's been helpful. That's a standard of care now. 
Sometimes it's easy to get myopic or, or have this tunnel vision for what we're trying to accomplish in the patient care room. And it, and it's sometimes it's helpful to really zoom out, especially thinking about the pediatric population. But I think it goes across all ages that, you know, these are significant events or significant conditions or injuries or diseases that really affect all of our patients' lives outside of the OMP clinic. And sometimes it's a little a little nudge that we all need reminding on on how it can affect other aspects of their lives too. And it's not just what we see in the gate room, right? Yeah, for sure. I That reminds me of a patient that I've seen over the years recently. He came to us with a borderline surgical magnitude curve, but he was a young boy with a lot of growth remaining and super active in baseball. Um, he was a pitcher and also active in scouting, and he was gearing up to go on one of the big hikes that the Boy Scouts do. And he did not want to have surgery. He was like, absolutely not. You know, I want to do everything that I can. You know, so we started bracing him, and he came in every three months for his brace checks, and we downloaded a sensor, and he was, you know, 20 hours. He was crushing it despite being super active in baseball and scouts and uh, he also played the cello, I think, and did broadcast at his school. So like a really active kid do, doing all the things he wanted to do. So I had a conversation with him of, you know, how how do you do it? Because clearly you're managing to wear your brace and do all the things you want to do. And he pulled out his phone and showed me a picture of him on a 20-mile hike. And his back brace was strapped to the outside of his pack. He was like, yeah, I can't wear it while I'm actually hiking. But as soon as I get there, I put it on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like, that's awesome. You're, you're so cool. You need to like make a video. And so he was inspired to help others. And he actually went up to our media department and, and did. He made a video of brace awareness to go out there and just try to, he wanted to try to help other kids to be more successful. That's incredible. Uh, what, I mean, what a great story. Yeah. Not everybody can do that, but you know, maybe, maybe if somebody that's struggling a little bit with brace wear sees that, then you know, maybe give them a little bit of a nudge in the right direction. You bet. You bet. Well, Kara, I thank you so much for all the work that you've done within, you know, the Spinal Orthotic Society and, and across the field. I do want to throw a, a quick reminder out there for anybody who's interested in the Spinal Orthotic Society or any of the nine other scientific societies that the Academy has. They span the realm of OMP patient care. And if they want to get involved, our listeners can go to the community section of the Academy's website at OMP.org. Kara, it's, it's been great having you on. Thank you so much for, uh, again, for everything that you've done within the Academy and, and the field in general. And, and thanks for joining us. Well, thanks, Seth. I appreciate the invitation. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of OMP Clinical Care Insiders. Join us each month as we continue our conversation with key voices in the OMP community, discussing their areas of clinical care and sharing personal experiences as professionals in that specialty. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to check out the Academy's other podcasts for OMP professionals. The award-winning OMP Research Insights with Dr. Steve Gard and OMP Rising, a podcast created for emerging professionals in our field. For more information on the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists, visit us online at onp.org. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.